It's Midday Magazine for Thursday, July 13th. I'm Shelby Herbert. An investigation into the fire at Petersburg's Catholic Church last week concluded that the blaze was caused by maintenance work happening outside the building. A statement released yesterday by Petersburg's fire marshal, Ryan Weldy, said the fire started on Dolphin Street and was accidental in nature. From there, the fire moved up the wall through the foam insulation inside the vinyl siding. It continued into the building's attic space and then spread over the roof. The fire marshal's statement added that an investigator representing the church's insurance company reached the same conclusions. St. Catherine's Congregation will celebrate Mass at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church this weekend. Father Thomas Jose was living at the Catholic Church when it burned down last week. He'll move to a residence at Petersburg's Presbyterian Church and says services for the St. Catherine's Congregation will likely move to that location in the weeks to come. The Alaska Division of Air Quality issued its first smoke alert of the year for Southeast Alaska this morning at 9 a.m. The region will be impacted by smoke from wildfires raging just over the Canadian border. As of last Friday, traces of smoke became visible across Alaska, but the winds have shifted and the fires have gotten worse. The division expects this will push a lot more smoke into the state over the course of the week. The smoke alert shows the air quality level for the entire panhandle from Skagway to Ketchikan dropped from good to moderate. It could even fall to unhealthy before the weekend. That means the concentration of smoke could affect public health. Sensitive groups like children, the elderly, and people with heart or lung diseases could experience health consequences from the smoky air. The state says people belonging to any of those groups should reduce prolonged or heavy exercise outdoors. The most recent weather observations show large amounts of smoke being carried into Alaska on southeasterly winds from British Columbia. Conditions in Canada support more wildfires and smoke for at least the next week. The state will issue its next report on Saturday morning if the air doesn't improve. The state's weather models show upper-level smoke plumes creeping into the southern half of southeast Alaska this morning. The most obvious impact will be haze during the day. Then the smoke will settle into the mountains and drain into coastal communities in the late evening hours. Petersburg's James A. Johnson Airport had a special visitor earlier this month, James A. Johnson himself. He flew in from his home in Tucson, Arizona to visit old friends for the 4th of July weekend and, to his great surprise, ride along in the parade. On the morning of the 4th, Johnson was picked up in a decorated Alaska Airlines van and paraded down Main Street. It's absolute uh, mystery to me. I'm not sure how this occurred when I came. I know there's people in the background that have done a lot of things, and I appreciate it, but I had no idea what I was up for. Johnson spent his youth in Petersburg, and then he managed the local airport for 40 years. In that time, he says the town hasn't changed too much. Up and down Main Street, other than changing of names, is pretty much about basically the same, but you know, when you look at the surrounding areas, all the new homes that have been built and the expansion, yeah, there's been a lot of changes. Since he left Petersburg for the lower 48, Johnson says he misses his friends above all else. 
especially as they become fewer in number with every passing year. But he also dearly misses the rugged beauty of southeast Alaska. And everything is so different here from Arizona. We don't have any trees or anything. And the water, I miss the water because I used to fish a lot and I owned boats when I lived here and I had a boat. But there's not much water around Arizona, so I miss that. A few years have passed since he last saw his hometown, and Johnson's family members say this visit is likely his last. He turned nine. He turned 90 in March. Reflecting on a long life well-lived, his best advice to others is to stay busy. True to his word, James A. Johnson departed James A. Johnson, a. Johnson Airport on the 5th to return to his retirement, which he spends fishing for halibut and salmon and following his grandchildren's athletic careers across the country. Juno's Mendenhall Glacier is reaching its capacity for commercial tours. That happened sooner this year than in previous years due to the growing number of visitors, according to reporting from the Alaska Beacon. That means tour operators are also facing limits on how many permits they have to visit the Mendenhall Glacier Recreation Area, which is overseen by the U.S. Forest Service. A limit of around 517,000 visitors was set in 2015 after an environmental analysis of the area. It it was increased slightly in 2019, but with the exception of the pandemic, the number of cruise ship visitors has grown. The cruise ship industry projected 1.65 million visitors to Alaska this year. The Forest Service said in a statement that it's asking for the public's patience and understanding. The agency is considering further expanding facilities at the glacier as a longer-term solution. That proposed project is under review by the public. In a statement, Juno Deputy District Ranger Laura Buckite described the public engagement with the proposal as being, quote, in the final stretch, end quote. In the summer, tens of thousands of Pacific walruses gather along Alaska's beaches, and one of the biggest haul-outs is on an island in Bristol Bay. It's also a traditional hunting site where Yupik people have harvested walrus for a thousand for thousands of years. Izzy Ross visited the island last year and talked to a few of Bristol Bay's walrus hunters about the importance of their hunts. Round Island is 30 miles from Togiak in the Bering Sea. The island's Yupik name is Kayasik, which means a place to kayak. It's home to an abundance of wildlife, from nesting seabirds to foxes to stellar sea lions. Starting in the spring, thousands of walruses come to crowd the beaches and waters. One June morning, several males lie on a large flat rock in the sun occasionally scratching and fanning out their flippers. Others swim in the waters nearby. State biologists have kept daily records of the summer walrus haul-outs here since the 1970s. One of those biologists is Amber Stevens, who spends months on the island every year monitoring the herd. This is obviously critical habitat for the male walrus because we only have male walrus that come here. The females stay with the ice with the calves and they follow the ice upwards and north as long as they can. 
When males gather, you can sometimes hear them chiming, a sound when they let the air out of a sack above their necks. Stevens says males use that sound during the mating season to woo females. But on this boys-only island, the chiming is practice for the real thing. Klyasik is a traditional hunting site where native people have harvested walrus for thousands of years. But the recent history of hunting on the island is fraught. In the 1800s, commercial hunting in the Arctic, especially by Yankee whalers, drastically reduced the walrus population. The federal government later outlawed commercial hunting, but ongoing concerns about habitat led the Alaska State Legislature to create a game sanctuary near Togiak in 1960. The state banned hunting in most of the sanctuary, including Klyasik. But there was no consideration for traditional harvest practices, and Native people couldn't access their hunting grounds for over 30 years. Finally, after years of work, tribal leaders from Togiak successfully advocated for the state to reopen a subsistence hunt in 1995. Local representatives on Klyasik Walrus Commission, along with state and federal agencies, co-manage a fall hunt every year. You could notice when people are getting restless. When, when, when is that walrus hunt going to be happening? Peter Lockuck Sr. is a Togiak Tribal Council member and a hunt captain. He says an important part of walrus hunting is sharing food with the community. After a successful hunt, we help each other and cut it up into smaller pieces so we could distribute it, first of all, to the elders and to the folks that can no longer hunt. Walrus hunts require a lot of organization. Lockuck says they have to plan who will shoot, who will provide the boats, and who will drive ahead of time. A lot also depends on the weather. Daryl Thompson has participated in Togiak's community walrus hunts on and off for years. To get to Kayasik requires a long boat ride across open water. You've got to have a really calm wind because it could be pretty calm when you leave the village up here protected with the shore. And once you leave Summit Island out there, it's open ocean. And if it was blowing last week farther out to sea, it's still going to have big waves out there. So you got to watch your weather real close out there. Thompson says hunting from boats in the open water is more dangerous, and there's a bigger risk of losing the harvest because the walrus can sink. It's easier to hunt on beaches where they can choose which animals to harvest, and Klyasik's rocky beaches are especially good for butchering because there's no sand to spoil the meat. When they're on the land, you can walk up point blank until that's the one and you put them down. It's a little bit more adventurous when they're all in the water. Mm -hmm. Then you gotta take your boat and get up and get the good shot and then you gotta harpoon them. Cause with the harpoon, you keep them from sinking and you can retrieve the, the animal. And that's a little bit different hunting technique doing that. Teaching younger people is also central to walrus hunting. The costs of gas and equipment mean it's become more expensive to go out. At a recent Klyasik Walrus Commission meeting, representatives talked about organizing a joint hunt between Bristol Bay communities. At 27 years old, David Williams of Equoc is the youngest member of the commission. So if we could get 20 hunters within the region as one joint hunt and get 20 walrus for all of our communities, I think that would definitely help 
everybody here, especially the elderly. Williams says people from his village crave these traditional foods. Personally, I would love to uh, to get my very first walrus and provide my community with my very first uh, walrus. This fall, hunters hope to gather a crew and go out again to teach new hunters and share with their communities. From Kyasik, I'm Izzy Ross. This story was made possible through a field reporting grant from the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources. KFSK has an open airwaves policy. We encourage the public to express personal opinions, ideas, and creative works. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of KFSK. And the following was, was submitted for broadcast by Mike Schwartz. 30 years ago, Spencer Israelson, who spent his youth at Point Agassiz, took me to the mainland and showed me many petroglyphs that he and his friends had found as they grew up in the area. He also showed me as well evidence of a native fish trap at Muddy River. My grandfather, Carol Clausen, took me to Sandy Beach when I was eight years old and showed me the petroglyphs there and the fish trap, which has been carbon dated and documented to have existed here at least 2,000 years ago, about the same time that Jesus was born. Several years ago, a freshet at the south end of Blind Slough revealed a fish trap carbon dated 5,000 years of age. Clinkett fish traps have been found several places in Wrangell Narrows and Duncan Canal. The Clinkett people have called this area home for thousands of years. To imply that they only came here during the summer to use the area for fish camps and to not have resided here is ridiculous. I can't imagine they would have traveled 60 miles from Cake, which has access to fish as well as other foods in their own backyard, and come here to just gather food. They wouldn't have come here from Angoon or Wrangell either. They gathered food, built fish traps, and carved petroglyphs because they lived here. To question their right to 23,000 acres in this area and to question the quality of the land that would be there is ridiculous. I've been hunting, fishing, and living on native land all of my life. It brings tears to my eyes to know what has been taken from them. When I was 24 years old and living in Sitka, I became close friends with an 85-year-old Clinkett from Angoon. Bob Zuboff was born around 1880 and was taught by his grandfather and his great-grandfather. He said this land is sacred to be lived on and to be respected. It is a great part of what we leave to those who follow us. The Creator and Mother Earth have given us this land to use to survive, and we give thanks always for what we have been provided. We leave this spiritual place as we have found it. We are questioning now about giving the Clinket people a small portion of this area. This land is where they have ex existed for thousands upon thousands of years. The landless in this area are asking for approximately 36 square miles. As we know, they resided on both Mitkoff and Kupernoff Islands, which encompasses a total of 1,286 square miles doesn't seem like an unreasonable expectation 
for a people who have resided here for over 10,000 years. The 1,286 square miles doesn't include land lived on by the Clinkett people on the mainland. To also suggest that we have the right to tell these folks what they can do on the land they hope to get is not ours to decide. When my ancestors arrived here some 120 years ago, they found a place that had been well cared for. These folks who are working on legislation in regards to the landless need the support of our council and the residents of Petersburg to allow the acquisition to occur. That was commentary from Mike Schwartz. KFSK encourages public expression of personal opinions, ideas, and creative works. Views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of KFSK. The KFSK Open Airwaves policy is available on kfsk.org. And for more information, please call General Manager Tom Abbott at 907-772-3808. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.